perception the difference between when you first got to Bangladesh from the United States you know it's a different environment everything can you compare that to once you're in Bangladesh um, every day going from the outside world or whatever into this camp did you feel like you were making a big transition into like a, a whole new place yes actually because where we stayed uh, in Cox Bazaar it, our hotel was right off the beach so in one sense, it seemed like a, a, it was it was a touristy area. You go in, you have people in the hotels that are dressed up, ready to go out to dinner or just see the sights. It's getting very touristy. Uh, you, you feel like you see a lot of expats. Then as you made your way down this, or as you made your way towards the camps, first you'd go through the rural areas. You'd see a lot of the schools, um, temples, uh in a sense, just typical rural life, what you would expect. Uh, but as you get closer, then you start to see, which I found interesting, the the branding. You'd start to see more logos for the World Food Organization or the um, United Nations, uh, well, for the UN or the, or for other refugee programs. The, the closer you get, then then you get into this little market area. Which is, I would say, maybe now a mile away from the camp, or you're just about to hit the border of that camp area. So when you see people on the sides of the roads, uh, you've got your typical shops uh, for food, drink, but people are also selling a lot of the rations that they received in the camp. And you can oh, tell wow. because you can see the packaging. Mm-hmm. And so it's the blue and white. Um, rice why, why do you think they're doing that? Uh, people need money. I mean, when you're in the camps, you can't work. I mean, you, they're they're refugees. You know, they yeah. they can't get a job. Uh, education is very limited. So, in order to, well, and this is what I'm assuming, just in, in order to get more staples uh, in camp and try and survive, uh, that's that's just one one of the things you're, you just have to, to do. use that to barter for other things. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so that's, but once you hit that, that's how you felt, okay, I'm definitely hitting a different zone. It's starting to change. And then, yeah. then, then you started to see, as I said, a lot more of different types of, uh, signs, uh, let's say for doctors beyond borders, little outposts where you'd stop, I guess where the employees or, or volunteers would I guess do their training and then they would uh, before they would go directly to the camps and then once you got right onto the camps you would then see a lot of the houses or the 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 dwellings in the distance in the hills uh, in the horizon let's say uh, right off this right off the street so it's it sort of the the camps in sense were walled off but it would be like yeah, past the walls you'd see all the the refugee housing, and then you finally make your way to the entrance to whatever specific camp you're going to, and that's still kind of muddled as far as you're just off the side of the road. It's usually right by some sort of distribution center for food, dirt roads, 
um, trucks parked, people mulling about. Um, so the, the area was divided up into like different camps? Yes. Uh, and, and so, again, being, being someone new there, I wasn't sure exactly where each camp was, but you would just find a different entrance to a different camp, and then uh, you work your way from from the opening of the camp, and then you can just work your way in. If I were to ask you to, like, describe kind of the mood or the tone that you felt when you first went in the camps or after you went there, you know, second or third or fourth time, how would you describe that? It'd be like, you know, is there a sense of relief in these people? Is there heartache? Is there panic? How would you describe that? I would say they were, it was solemn. Uh, there, there was, it, it was dark, a dark feel, but it wasn't, you didn't feel hopeless. Hmm. Uh, you didn't feel, you didn't, you didn't feel the sense of doom. I think there's more of a sense of, in, of endurance, of, uh, survival. If, if you can say that, if you, if you can put that in terms of a feeling, uh, th- there was, people were always moving there there was uh, there was life in the camps you know people were making things uh and i I mean by they were constructing houses it's always expanding till there seemed to always be a job to be done whether it's collecting water doing laundry uh again building roofs uh people were doing something and then I think being a outsider, you were a grateful distraction from what was going on from that daily toil though. So as soon as we walked into the camp, and this is when I say we, uh, the first two days it was just me and my translator and a guide to take us through the camp, people still would just stare right at us and like I said I just being a large six foot two black man you know with dreads uh, I stood out a little bit so people definitely said okay who's this guy who's got a camera and people would either follow me or they would just watch me as I walked by as I said before I got a lot of stares a lot of looks but I but I think it was a distraction that people were now used to and in some ways that's good because I think people are more prepared to try and get their stories out because now and, and maybe that they realize okay there are people outside that are taking interest into this so I'm hoping that's how they perceived it that people are there because they want to see what's going on so they can tell others mm-hmm. uh, you mentioned you interviewed many people interacted with the kids um, we were talking earlier that you don't feel comfortable um, turning it into a voyeuristic kind right. of ordeal, right? Yeah. Um, but that being said, is there anything um, that stands out from those experiences that you still carry with you? Yeah. Again, what what stood out to me is just how eager and how willing people were to tell their story. So my strategy in getting the stories was, again, these are all very tragic and I just wanted to be at the point where to to allow people to tell it. So I wasn't necessarily trying to force people to say something or I wasn't trying to shape their words. It was more like 
I would set up and then just just try to be polite and respectful. Are you willing to tell your story and then ask a few uh, pointed questions, but general enough where you could you you could go on uh, to tell your tale, tell how you came here, tell what you experienced. But I, I just wanted people to tell it in their own words. I wasn't trying to uh, guide them to get what I specifically wanted. I just wanted them to say what they wanted to say. And so what I found is, again, people were very willing to tell the story. Uh, and almost a momentum built up where once I had the camera up and I was talking to one person, more people would join in. And they really, then they wanted to tell their story and they kind of jump in. So when when I was first doing it as a group format, not, it it was just a little more difficult because you'd have one person after another telling their story, answering the questions, and reacting. And it, again, it was great for them. Uh, but but then the filmmaker part of me jumped in and said, you know, I don't necessarily have a lot of places I can cut to because I've got one right after the other, slightly overlapping, telling their stories. But but it's the emotional reactions that that you don't want to cut off. And Again, these people are telling about how they've lost loved ones and they're getting emotional, they're crying. I'm not going to stop them and say, oh, let's take that again. Let's take it back one more time. So, but, but, but people were willing to just relive these horrific events. And that, that really stood out to me because they weren't trying to hide it. They they owned what the situation was and they wanted to change it. Yeah, we'll come back to that in a minute when we talk. I want to ask you a little bit more uh, about the technical side of crafting a documentary and how to do the. But before we do that, um, do you want to tell us about any other the of the sites or sounds from Bangladesh? Like I think you mentioned, you visited a, a temple before. Anything else that was like a interesting? Yeah. Yes, again, it, it's like I saw totally di- different sides of the coin in, in how people were living in Bangladesh. Like you said, I, I, I did get to visit a few Buddhist temples. And so I've, I went to three different ones. And each one had, again, a different feel to it. Different things were going on. The, the, the first one, it was almost deserted when I went there. There were just... Uh, just a few kids running around and a few monks so i'd say about four or five people there total when i went there but it was where they had this huge statue of a lying buddha a buddha lying down and it was i think one of the largest in the region uh but but again everyone was very friendly when i asked could i take pictures they said sure uh it was funny watching the kids run around because when they were in front of the camera, they were really serious. They, you know, they gave me some mean mugged looks. And then once the camera was off, they were just playing like any other kids, pushing each other, uh, running running around behind uh, the houses and playing in the trees. So they they were having a good time. But just like kids here, you know, once the camera's on, they, they were really trying to be kind of stern. The second, the second uh, temple I went to... It was bigger, and it had more prayer, prayer um, and I'm not sure what you call it, but 
areas to pray. So they had a bunch of different types of Buddhas. And, and what stuck out to me there was they had the Buddha that had the neon flashing light behind him. Yeah, so I didn't expect to see that. So I had to get a bunch of pictures of that Buddha. That one, there were more people there. There were more uh, visitors. And and so they, they, they were also willing to help me get pictures. But it was, also, it was hard to get out of there because they wanted me to take pictures of everything. So they were so happy to have visitors. Now, the last temple I went to, there happened to be a festival going on at the time. So it was um, it was a part Hindu, part Buddhist festival, and we had to walk we had to walk up a, a long uh, staircase to get there but before you got there, it looks like there were there were there were a lot of school children doing exercises or and when I say exercises, I mean they were they were marching around and doing a performance for the people. They also had a little bazaar outside well, it wasn't a little bazaar, it was a large bazaar. So there was just a lot of action, a lot of people going on. It it was a real party. And so we made our way up to the top to the uh the temple and the monk who was there actually spoke English. So that was great because then he gave we were able to interview him. And usually one of the challenges for this type of job, and when I mean doing the documentary, is the, is the translation and trying to communicate. But this guy spoke great English, so so we were able to get a really nice interview. He did the interview in English, so that saves hours of translation time once we get back into post-production. But what I was also taken by is that he was willing to talk about the Rohingya situation and how it affected, you know, his country and how he also felt that the Buddhists in Myanmar need to change the way they're acting. You know, he he definitely was not supportive of that. And so it was, it was, it was refreshing to know that there are people who will speak out, and in a developing nation, in a place like this, it's hard to be to be vocal like that. So that, so I appreciated the bravery that it took for that person to give a live interview and and state what he did. Is that interview going to be included in the documentary? Hopefully. Cool. So I'm planning I look on forward it. Forward to that. That's really interesting. One more thing that stood out to me: what was you just saying? is um, the kids that you saw all over the place. Mm-hmm. It kind of seems like kids will always act like kids yep. no matter where they are. Did you get the experience that inside the camp as well, that the kids were still acting like kids oh, normally yeah. would? Or was there a sense of, you know, these kids have been, like, beaten down and just traumatized? No, it, it was like kids were kids wherever they are. And, in fact... The funny thing is they also have the same attitude as they get a little older. So the little kids, they would still run around and again, they were learning English. So they love to say, hello, how are you? Hello. And they just run up, say it. And then when you say it back to them, they start giggling and run away. There was also, then you've got your kids who are young, but little troublemakers. Like I was taking shots of one of the delegations meetings and it was at the bottom of a little hill. And so some of the kids were... You know they were kicking a little dirt. You know they were they were watching the 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 mug clog 
the clogs of mud, you know, kind of roll down the hill, right, you know, right at my feet. Then I look at up, up at them, and again they run away. Or if I was trying to take a shot of a, uh, sometimes kids would hide behind uh, walls or or uh, laundry, and then I look back and they hide and come back. So yeah, th- th- they could always they could find some sort of fun. They could find happiness. Uh, th- there was this. There's also this sport that they were playing. So you've got the older kids now. So the, so those are, let's say, the three, four-year-olds. You've got your nine, 10, 12-year-olds. They're out there playing sports. They're, they have a variation of soccer and volleyball where you just use your feet or your, or your head, and then you kick the ball over the net. So they had, a, they had an area like that where a lot of the kids were playing. But that's, kids are going to find something to do. And and then some of the older kids, they they did have cell phones, and they they people did have smartphones. So you had the kids who were taking shots of me, and then again they were they were cool teenagers. You know they 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 would give a little kind of hard pose as you take a shot of them, but you know they'll smile back at you. You know there's mutual respect. Uh, in fact, the point in which the little kids were goofing around and throwing some of the mud then one of the older kids and I, I would say he'd be about 14 or 15 then he came down and told them you know they need to act you know they need to behave themselves and then they stopped and then he stood and gave me a smile I, let me know that he helped me out and, you know I, I got a shot of him but again I, I feel like with anything if you take a general interest in people especially with kids or or teenagers, if they feel you're sincere, then they'll treat you with respect. You know, not trying to fake anything. And even if I was uncomfortable, or and I felt comfortable, but if you're, but I think it's just as long as you're genuine, uh, you'll have a positive interaction. Yeah, I mean, it's like, amazing that they'll always be able to find some way to play. Yeah. And I mean, you know, just and, and and I say play more so than just be happy because they're like they're taking their environment, whether it's a, a bombed out house in Syria or you know a a, a mud soaked refugee hut but they're able to take that environment and turn it into something in their own world where they can derive some sort of pleasure from it mm-hmm. and no that is amazing you, because you today you can allow just such little things in in those of us in developed countries to just bring us down and we can find so many ways to complain and blame people for things where you've just got these young children who have nothing but their imagination and they're still able to make something positive come from that. Yeah. I guess that kind of transitions us into what I want to talk about for uh, about documentaries. Mm-hmm. Um, so you've made other documentaries. you worked on documentaries before. Yes. Uh, can you tell us a little bit what well, those the main one I did uh, was actually a Chicago-based documentary, and it was about roller derby. <laughs> so I've I followed a few of the members of the local Chicago team, the Windy City Rollers, and uh, you know saw what their daily life was like, and then juxtaposed that with their their time as skaters and just so you could see the difference and how the uh, 
stress of being a derby uh, athlete can affect your normal life. So that, and that that was that was a great experience. So I guess my question would be, um, do you when making a documentary, do you go into it with a story, and you or do you try to craft a story, or does the story kind of make itself as you go along? I would say that there's a little bit of both when you do the documentary. I definitely go in with a story that I expect to tell. And other and, and I think that's that's fair. It allows me to get a framework for the story, the structure, and then when you're trying to get trying to uh, ask questions of your subjects, it it can, it makes everything more focused and pointed. So I have no problem admitting, yeah, I go in with the story I want. However, you just have to be open to know you have to be open to changing your story because you may not get the answers you want. So actually an example would have been with the roller derby documentary. I really just wanted to talk about how, again, the women are sacrificing and as, and it was also as they were leading up to uh, one of the big uh, matches between one of their rivals. So we just wanted to see them train and there's, I expected them to say how much they love it, but, you know, they're going to give it up. Well, they'll give everything up just for that fight. But it ended up turning into something where I interviewed one of one of the uh, skater's sister, who was also a coach. And she really thought that her sister had been in Derby too long because her sister had been injured. She was just coming off of, I think... She was coming off of a concussion. And so uh, the coach was saying that being in roller derby is like being in an abusive relationship. It's just, you know, you should stop, but you can't help it. You keep going back. And she, I mean, but she was genuinely concerned for the health of her sister and genuinely wanted her to stop. And so that, that was not the direction I was going. I, I, I was thinking of it more just upbeat, fun, you know, raw girl power film. And then this became closer to something about someone who does not recognize when they should hang up the skates. Mm -hmm. And, you know, initially I was a little hesitant to keep going down, down that direction, but that's where the story was and that's what was compelling. And you had that, you, you had a really great conflict with that. So that being said, uh, you just have to be open to letting the people tell their story because you're going to find something no matter what that's a little bit deeper than you originally went into. I think we find that I think you can find that with anything. You know, you know you you expect something but then the reality tends to be much more surprising than you thought. And and I think people find that just when they talk to their friends or family and then they open up and they realize, "Oh, you've been through all these trials and tribulations I had no idea." That's what I feel do- documentary filmmaking is like. You have an idea of what you want, but then just if you leave yourself open, you're going to get so much more. So what kind of ideas or <clears throat> questions did you uh, go into this trip with? So this one we went more about... Uh, I mean, we all, we all know kind of the situation that's happening there. It's very tragic. Um, we call it a genocide, although the international community hasn't really done that officially yet i think they're starting to a little bit um so 
so we knew kind of what was going on as a documentarian from that perspective what kind of uh direction were you expecting what what ideas or questions you going well i was going more from the idea of just chronicling uh their uh their experiences and having it be more of like where if we get a volume just a number uh, just a, a a volume of people sharing similar stories but they all come from different parts of the camp you realize that the, just to legitimize what they're going through so that so so I'll say my strategy was again just in a sense to ask the same question to a lot of different people and then we just get go going through with just a a lot of different answers to that same question where we might um have uh uh like the the type of film where where you you might have eight or ten different people just giving different um sharing different stories but as an audience member you go in with with a narrow uh set of questions that are being asked but with a but with a wide range of answers so so that was that was the strategy going in so that's why when i said when i initially started we were giving some group interviews where we would ask the same question of two or three people in an example of a question would have been did you see any of your family members get killed as you were escaping uh Myanmar so very simple question but that leads itself open to generally yes and then they will explain what they saw and how they felt uh you know it's it's pretty open ended now it it was great in the sense that people were very honest and they were really willing to share their stories uh but the challenge was when you were this is this is just a production thing when you're going one after another that's when i felt like sometimes the people would overlap in their stories and when they were getting so emotional like i said i i, I couldn't stop them i you, you i felt it would be dis, it would be disrespectful to stop someone when they're trying to tell that story so that's how we started out with that and we moved then we moved to just interviewing individuals asking similar questions but uh that that was the strategy i took with this one having sort of just a list of questions that we go and then we'll get varied responses from a wide range of individuals mm-hmm. was there any unexpected turn um as far as the story um forming itself the way you thought it would as story wise i wouldn't i would say no and i only and i preface this preface this with the fact that i don't speak rohingya so i could only gauge what they were saying by body language and uh their expressions and be, because i wanted them to be able to tell their story i didn't press my translator to translate as they were going so when people were telling long stories i'd let them go but uh what i found is one time when a man was talking about uh suffering uh injuries i think he got blown up by a landmine and he pulled up a little girl so mm-hmm. the, and i may have mentioned that before but yeah. when 
when he brought up this girl to show all the wounds she had sustained on the trip, that was shocking. Again, didn't know what they were saying, but from body language, from from looking at them, it uh, that was very moving. And then it was just other times when people would run to other huts, run down the road to just bring people to tell their story. Uh, an, another question we would ask is, you know, what type of documentation did you have when you came over? Because that's an issue in for Rohingya to prove that they're from Myanmar, they have to have certain types of documentation, but it's almost impossible for the have it to have it. But people started running to different houses, running to different people to bring people to show all the different documentation. And they were coming one after another while we were still interviewing people. So we started out with just, you know, two people next to each other. Not a lot of people in the background, but as one person was telling their story, word had gotten out that we were that we were asking these questions. And next thing you know, you look up and you've got 10, 15 people sort of in the background huddling behind uh, behind the speaker. So that again led us to say, okay, we can't just keep doing this. We can't do the questions in group form because we keep getting mobbed. And so that's when we shifted our approach and how we were going to frame it and shoot it. But yeah, I, I would say how people kept coming up with more stories and volunteering stories, not people we asked, just people who were who were being um, again brought into the film. That was really surprising to me. So the challenge will become once we translate all of this to see if the actual the actual stories how they tie together. Yeah, are there? Um... So your strategy for making a documentary, your process for making documentary is kind of to go in with a set of ideas and then you would say just let it play out? Pretty much. Okay. Yeah. So, and then again, it depends on the documentary. Like this, this type of filming is again, a little more challenging. So it's because, kind of a balanced approach, I guess. Yeah. I mean, it's, well, but it, it just depends on the environment. Like I said, when I'm dealing with the roller derby, I was a roller derby fan so, and I understood the language. So there, there was there was a little bit of geekdom involved, where I had fun being around it. I I knew more about what they were doing, and I mean, I I physically knew where they were because they were in Chicago. I understood them, and you know, I have a sports background, so it was easier to craft this sort of story. And it was also it was also more lighthearted. So. So I probably came in on that one with a more of a focused story that I wanted to tell uh, because as a fan of a sport or something, I knew what I wanted to see. This one was a little different because, again, I'm telling somebody else's – well, both times you're telling someone else's story, but this is a very serious situation, and I want to make sure I'm giving them credit and and, and respecting the – respecting what they're going through uh and then mixed with the challenge of the language the location um just we have limited time when we're with them because you can only be at the camps for a certain amount of hours physically it's just demanding setting up breaking down doing all that stuff in 100 degree weather there there were a lot of external issues that made this one a lot more challenging but 
but the main thing was because I wanted to make sure that uh, I was fair in allowing them to give their story. I I just focused on having set questions, but again, open, but open ended enough where they could guide where it would end up. Yeah. Are there? Um, do other documentarians adopt like a different approach? Are some people? Like, for example, totally, totally open and not even, you know, going in there with any sort of versus on the other end of the spectrum. Are there people who are more like, you know, the story has to be this and then they craft all the interviews and everything to fit that narrative? I, I definitely think so. Uh, and again, I, and I think it works on both ends because at the end of the day, documentary filmmaking is still filmmaking. And you're still telling a story, and you still are trying to attract an audience. So different filmmakers have different uh, techniques or strategies to achieve that. I'll I'll use Michael Moore as an example. A very successful filmmaker. He's really good at uh, capturing, uh, or in, in a sense, chronicling what he would consider hypocrisy. He, I don't want to say he's he manipulates, but he does know how to craft a story in a specific point of view. And when I've seen a lot of his work, you don't when you see a Michael Moore film, you know what you're going to get, and you know what the end of the story is going to be, just from whatever the title probably is. Uh, he's going there still using documentary techniques as far as interviewing people, letting them tell their tale, but I, he's really crafted it. So he, he has a, I'd say a slanted, uh, finished product, but that's, but that's okay. Uh, that's, there's nothing, let's say totally unethical about that, but it's, it's, it's it's a story. So it's a little bit less objective in that yeah, sense see, that he has kind of a mission of the documentary that the, the message kind of should be this, and then everything everything to like fit into that. Yes, I, I mean I, I would think of it like a funnel. You know, he's what it, he's got an idea of what it's supposed to be, and everything is going to go down that funnel to get to that answer. He's not going to be the one that is going to go a different direction. There's another filmmaker by the name of Werner Herzog, and his documentaries are more stories than messages. And I for, I forgot the one he did, but he he did a documentary about the Grizzly Man. Have you ever heard of Grizzly Man? No. It's about this guy who was living with the bears in um, I, I don't know if it was Alaska or something, but he felt that the this grizzly man thought that he could train that he could live with wild bears and he had figured out in a sense the bear language but uh wow. he got killed by a, a grizzly okay yeah i think i have heard i vaguely remember hearing about but this when story. you see the documentary i mean it's a true story but again it's it's told like a non-fiction movie in documentary form uh, it's it's definitely heightened. 
uh, emotion. He heightened it emotionally, and I don't know if you know how Werner Herzog talks, but he's got this thick German accent, and everything is so pointed. And Werner is serious about what he is talking about. So, that, so that's his narration. Uh, but it, but it's definitely entertainment first. Uh, so now on the flip side, I'll be honest, I'm not exactly sure who the filmmakers are that might just be wide open. And maybe that answers the question of because those type of filmmakers don't come to mind to me yeah alright well thanks for being with us thanks for having me uh, we hope to have you back once Tariq is back he's out of town doing big things in Europe oh, right yeah, now yeah. Um, so we hope to talk to you again soon you shall you shall you'll have me you'll definitely have me back with the movie talk so. cool alright sounds good alright take care now